You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, my name is Jen Zlinska and I'm the creative director of M Pavilion. This talk is one of the digital events as part of the November programme theme, Island Life. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the land that I'm so grateful to live and work on and where I'm recording this conversation today. I pay my respects to elders past, future and emerging and any First Nations people who are listening. Sovereignty was never ceded, and we believe this ancient sovereignty is something we can continuously learn and grow from. We are committed to ongoing practices of decolonization and honor the leadership and self-determination of First Nations peoples. So, I'm delighted to be joined by Rhett Loven. Rhett is a lecturer at Macquarie University. His passions are game-based learning, history, virtual reality, and grand strategy. In 2019, he was awarded the CSIRO Indigenous Professional Career Achievement Award for his work on the Torres Strait virtual reality, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So good afternoon, Rhett. Um, I'd love to know where you're speaking from today. Hi, Jen. Uh, yeah, so my name is Rhett and I'm speaking from Sydney, so on direct land. Um, and I, I mean... To get the conversation started, I think we, we want to go back to the beginning. Um, and so I'm, I'm intrigued to know how you first got into gaming um, and when did this evolve into in this interest in game-based learning? Yeah, like, um, oh, well, I suppose some of my first games were probably Game Boys. So playing things like Pokemon, um, I had a Nintendo 64 and uh, I got Mario Kart on that. Um, so that's kind of when I was first exposed to kind of games. But I started, uh, I felt I was learning more through games when I started getting into uh, history games. So you had things like Age of Empires, um, but then we had, I was also into things like grand strategy games, which is kind of what some of my research was on. Um, so, uh, things like Europa Universalis, um, uh, Hearts of Iron, uh, uh, Victoria uh, too. So there's there are a whole bunch of different grand strategy games that I played, and and that was even in high school. And it was when I was playing those, uh, I felt I had learned. Um, uh, I felt I had learned uh, about history through playing those games. Um, and that's obviously different from Torres Strait virtual reality, which is more about culture and uh, and it's a virtual reality game. But that's kind of where I started getting into games and kind of when I started thinking about how you can learn from games. It's so interesting, isn't it? The kind of um, spheres of learning that can develop um, 
through gaming, but also kind of how, I guess, there's elements of, of how your brain develops imagery and retains information. Um, but also very funny that you started with Pokemon, um, as every um, every teenager, I'm sure, did. Um, and so you just you just touched on then the Torres Strait virtual reality, and I guess that's kind of actually, again, where we'd love to know, beyond just the gaming, what, what was your inspiration for developing it? Yeah, so... Um... I, I don't know if you know, but obviously, but, but for me, there are, um, aren't many Torres Strait Islander people or Torres, there isn't much Torres Strait Islander um, culture depicted in games, let, uh, let alone like, and, you know, there's not even any Indigenous people generally depicted in games. Um, so there's not none from Aboriginal culture or Aboriginal peoples. And even if there are Indigenous cultures, so you have things like Native American nations that are depicted in games, uh, they're not always depicted in the right way, or it's always someone's, someone else's understanding who's not from the culture, uh, creating their own representation of what those people are in the game. So there's always, there were, even if they were depicted there, it's not always necessarily in the right way. Um, so one of my motivations was mm -hmm. there was an absence in, in these games or in many games that I'd ever played about Trishana culture. And I thought this was a way to communicate it. And it just so happened that um, when I was working at the university, uh, I was working in a course where you had to work with a game engine. And I learned how to um, use the game engine and build games through this game engine. Uh, and while I was also teaching it as well. So uh, I had learned there, learned that. And uh, it was also fortuitous that I was, um, I was talking to somebody who at the university uh, and they were able to help me go through kind of a funding process and I was able to kind of get started on Torres Strait virtual, virtual reality that way. Um, so that also combined with the VR, VR component, which had come out recently as well. And um, I thought that aspects and elements of Torres Strait Islander culture in terms of astronomy, in terms of like experiential learning. Um, it's culture for me is like living day to day and just experiencing all sorts of things, fishing, uh, cooking, whatever it might be. Those things really resonated with me and I thought they combined well with, um, or that kind of learning combined well with virtual reality. So that was kind of my inspiration for it, is there was a lack of culture um, a lot of things com um, combined because of the opportunity to actually create it. And I thought the technology worked really well with how the culture, um, with, with, how, with how the culture is kind of taught and how I kind of experience it mm -hmm. and how my family experiences it anyway. So amazing. It's just like this kind of yeah, world's colliding of, of timing and, and interest and funding available. And, and when that happens, it can be pretty magic in terms of the output. And and so I'm interested during that process and obviously the research that you were doing, um, how, how long did you spend researching it? And also through that process, did you find anyone even kind of similarly working in, in this field, whether it was... Um, another First Nations person or like is there is there anything that can even compare because it to my understanding it's it's pretty unique yeah I, I I think there was maybe another one for 
uh, and Aboriginal groups, but there were definitely none for Torres Strait Island people that I had knew or that I had known about. Do you know what I mean? Um, and and, also, and for this research and like for the game, um, I was relying a, a lot. It was actually a combined sort of thing. So there are a lot of stories that I kind of know myself. Um, I, there are things that I kind of know from my family and that my family tells me as well. Um, and when I'm doing this as well, I'm also listening to other people and kind of hearing what they say, but it's also me going and doing my own research as well. So for Torres Strait virtual reality in terms of researching and, you know, doing all of it and creating the game, um, it was kind of a, a combination of my own things. Uh, my dad, who was there, and he was advising the project as well, uh, and um, kind of my own research and also hearing from the community as well, uh, even if they're not Torres Strait Islander, even if they're kind of like the general uh, indigenous community, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, even hearing from them and their feedback, uh, it's always good to hear their input. To have it all kind of in the same place. And um, has your dad played the game? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he's played with the game. He uh, he enjoyed it. I remember he went in there for like, he was in there for like an hour or so at one point. So, because normally like, <laughs> it's kind of funny when people go into VR, sometimes they're good and they can only last, and they can last for a long time, like my dad, for an hour. And then sometimes they go in there for a minute and they have to go out. But um, no, he thought it was good. And um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think he, he he was enjoyed with it. He enjoyed it, and like I said, he had a lot of kind of input into it as well in guiding it. So proud father. So so tell me, I'm really interested in. Um, and for the record, I'm definitely one of those people who cannot stay in VR. I go weak at the knees and feel quite motion sick. Um, but I would love to know from your perspective, hearing more about the journey that um, a player would go on in the game. So kind of they're in this interactive environment. What, what does it look like? What are they immersed in? Yeah. So the the game is based on um, something in the Torres Straits called a tombstone opening. So a tombstone opening is so um, after someone's passed away, it could be like uh, a year or maybe just until the family can afford it. You have this end of mourning period. And that's kind of where you um, unveil uh, the person's tombstone. But it's just not unveiling the tombstone. There's a whole um, kind of uh, um, uh, event about it. So there'll be singing, there'll be dancing, there'll be feasts, there'll be all these sorts of things that are kind of happening. And obviously family all coming together. Um, but what happens with these events is because they're family they're cultural events, but they're also family events as well. Uh, and you have to organize the event. People have different responsibilities um, for the event. So some people will do the dancing at the at the event. Other people will have to go out and maybe hunt dugong or the turtle or get fish. And that's something that they have to contribute to the event. You'll have some people who will be cooks at the event. Some people might bring like the, uh, the vegetables that they've grown along but everyone has different responsibilities uh, at the event. So really this story is based on, so there's going to be a tombstone opening and it's your duty uh, to go collect some different items for the event. Uh, and so what you're doing is you're going to kind of different islands 
And in this process, you're also encountering um, different wildlife. Um, there's constellations in the sky. Um, there, if you wander off track, you'll also run into kind of different story characters as well from the Torres Straits. So uh, it's centrally, it's based around the tomb smoking, but there's other elements of Torres Strait uh, culture and um, uh, I guess uh, elements of the environment from the Torres Strait uh, put into the game as well. Amazing. And so when you when you start playing the game, how do you um, identify as one of those people? Do you have the option to kind of um, to to choose the persona of which role you're going to take, or is it kind of all encompassing in terms of the way you you decide to to navigate the game? So it's actually um, it's actually a linear sort of thing in that way. So you're you can obviously it, it's a a game where you can wander around and you can you don't have to go to the next checkpoint. Um, so you can wander around and you can go to different islands and those sorts of things, but you can't necessarily choose the duties that you'll do in the game. Um, and, and even in saying that, I should also probably uh, mention as well, in the game there actually aren't, uh, you won't see any necessarily Torres Strait Islander people in the game. Uh, and the reason for that, so you can't see other people doing their duties or, you know, doing different things. And the reason for that is that there isn't really that much in the way of models or gaming assets to, um, I suppose, uh, develop these kinds of games. Do you know what I mean? So if you, when you're doing game development, not everyone creates all their assets themselves. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you'll go online and you'll buy different assets. So if you want a tropical island uh, uh, setting, you go on and you'll buy these different assets that you bring into the game to create that setting. Um, there's no Indigenous people really that, so there's no models, like 3D models created for different Indigenous people, uh, let alone Torres Strait Islanders. So um, when I was building this game, uh, I was trying to insert as many elements of Torres Strait Islander culture and environment into it, but unfortunately I couldn't do that in that way. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't. You unfortunately you won't be able to see or choose kind of doing other sorts of duties in those ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I tried to do it with what I could at that point, I suppose. Yeah, it's something I was interested in asking you about because that absence of Torres Strait Islanders, like in the game, like that, I guess says a lot about the challenges of representation in the context of these new kinds of digital storytelling. Um, and do you see any kind of other alternative strategies to overcome this or, or for you, is it about, um, embodying as much of, as you can of Torres Strait Islander, um, culture? Do you, like, do you think that that, that will change that representation? Uh, you have to have a lot more people in the industry making those sorts of things, or maybe you have to have the funding to, to custom make those models and assets. So I, I had chosen, I, there were obviously other models there. So they had models for like um, uh, people from other cultures, so from different Asian cultures. They had people from like models for people from the US. So there were um, models for maybe African-Americans or those sorts of things. And I didn't want to put any necessarily anything else as a substitute because I thought it, it didn't do service to kind of 
what I wanted to do or what I wanted to communicate, mm-hmm. and it would me. So, uh, in that way, um, I tried to do other things, like I, like you know, like I said, I tried to put in the constellations, I tried to put in um, the narrator, and he'll talk about what's happening and what process you're going through. Uh, I've tried. I did make some assets. So what I did was. Um, I got one of my uh, students who was working with me to create assets like the drum uh, and uh, um, uh, kind of like Torres Strait Harpoon. So there's these different things that I was trying to do. Um, the the constellations, they were sketched, and then I turned them into 3D objects and put them into the sky. Uh, and then so and those are, are sketches of... Um, there are sketches of actual Torres Strait constellations or story characters of actual Torres Strait constellations. Um, so they are specific to the Torres Straits. Uh, and obviously putting in the animals as well, because um, a lot of those animals are represented in the Torres Straits. And in the Torres Straits, you have totem animals, like some of them are your totems, so they're important as well. So although I couldn't have people in there and I didn't necessarily, like I said, what was available I didn't want to put in there. There were other ways that I tried to communicate that um, through audio, like the narration, or through other kinds of interactions and processes. It's just incredible. I'm I'm completely fascinated about uh, the process of building a virtual reality uh, galaxy in which you're having these constellations just in terms of the sheer scale of it like I just don't know where you'd start and I'm um, you mentioned then the students that you were working with in terms of, of drawing those objects could you the kind of process around this like how how long did it take you to build the game and 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 who are you working with yeah so I uh, a lot of so I was kind of the lead on it um, I had two students who were helping me as well. Um, and they, some coming on at the same time, some before and some after. Uh, so my dad, who's an elder, he was on the project advising it. And he was also, he's the one who did the sketches as well. Amazing. So he did the sketches and that's what I took. And I converted that, what he had sketched into the constellation. So that was just like a matter of scanning it and then um, turning into a 3D object. Um, there was obviously uh, a lot of people in the, um, I think it was like the IT faculty or it's like the, it's the people who, they're like learning designers. I'm not sure what they are, but they're like project managers of a sort maybe. And they, I had a lot of- Sounds about right. Yeah, I had, so they were, they were a lot of help as well. But what we also did and what I did through this process as well, because- um, uh, I, I, I did it unwittingly in some ways, but in game design there, we have something called um, uh, player-centered design, and that's where you're getting people to play the game and they give feedback and they shape the game. Um, but what I was doing was I was, I was obviously working, I'm a Torres Strait so I have knowledge my dad, who's an elder, he's working there and he's advising the project. But we're also going out to community. And even if they're not, we're obviously seeing Torres Strait Islanders and they're giving their input. 
but by going out and playtesting in the community or with different classes, they're kind of giving you their input as well and they're shaping the game in that way as well. Uh, so it was, like I said, it was me, it was uh, my dad, the elder, and their two students, uh, two of my students, and then um, the other team, uh, the project manager. And then, um, like I said, we were going out into the different classes and to different events and getting and hearing from what uh, the students and what other uh, maybe Indigenous people are saying and integrating that in as well. Because that's actually, you know, I guess reading about your work and obviously I haven't experienced the game, but um, how do you navigate the cultural protocols around incorporating traditional knowledge in this medium? How do you go about sharing it and making sure that the experience of the of maybe not the player, but the kind of process around sharing it, have you got um, any specific ways in which you want um, an individual to engage with it? Yeah, so uh, for me, um, so when we think about culture, for me as a Torres Strait Islander, um, I see culture as like a tree. So you have these deep rooted um, things, you have a tree, like a tree have roots at the bottom and those are the deeply embedded things in culture. So tradition, traditional ways of dance, storytelling, um, traditional knowledges, all these sorts of things. But up through the tree, you have these branches that come out and these are new representations of culture. So these could be things like new takes on dance, uh, different ways of singing, uh, or even things like games that I, that I do, right? Um, so when we think about culture, sometimes you think of it as unchanging, but culture is not a static thing, it changes. So uh, when I'm doing this game, uh, we, like you said, we have to go kind of through, we can depict culture and we can communicate culture in different ways, but it's just, it's the process that you go through and how, how that's a representation of culture. Uh, I think that's kind of the main thing. So a lot of the issues that when I, when I look at the other games that I, you know, how I talked about the other games before. A lot of the issues is that they didn't consult the community and they didn't go into the community and talk to people. And as a result, they've come up with, and they've gone through this process, right? Where they've come up with something that they think is a representation of the culture, but it really isn't a representation of a culture. Where what I wanted to do, obviously I'm Torres Strait Islander, so I have a bit of knowledge and my dad's there, he's Melvin, he has that knowledge. But we all even, then sometimes they're familial stories or their familial knowledge as well. So you'll have a certain take on it, but if you go out to the community and you're engaging in the community, you'll they'll have a different take on it as well. But if you're doing that and you integrate that into your game process, well, then you're really getting a more holistic understanding of what that culture is and how people think about it. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. So when I'm thinking about um, game design, that's kind of what I was, and I, I did it in some ways, I think I did unintentionally, but that's just what's embedded in the culture is that there's a process, there are these processes and protocols that you go through. And it just so happens that it was a gaming process that I, I did it with. Um, other, other things in Torres Strait culture, you'll go and go through similar processes 
where you go through, um, it, it's like a engagement to get a, a consensus, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, you'll have a more, hopefully you'd have a more holistic understanding. Maybe it's not perfect, but for me, that's a more authentic representation of culture and how you can do it because it's come from the people and it's come from a variety of people in that way. It doesn't always have to, but it, it, it's definitely, a, it was a stronger thing for me in that way. It's, it's, um, it, it, it does make sense the way you describe it in that, in that way and that idea of how holistic it, it can make the experience. And so for you, I'm, I mean, I might be putting words in your mouth, but do you see um, how, the kind of the potential of VR as a new form of this cultural practice, like, like the fit of it for the way in which you can learn and um, how that also might evolve histories ongoing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a different way to learn and to communicate. Like one of the things that I really like about virtual reality is that it's more related to experiential types of learning. So for me, uh, I suppose it might, it, it's probably not as good as, it's obviously not as good as a real experience, but it's maybe a little bit more immersive than say a book or um, uh, a video or something like that. Because in the way that I think about learning and the, in the way that culture is understood for me is kind of in your everyday practice and through your experiences, and like even from an educational sort of academic sort of point of view um things like learning from country which is by from neil harrison uh he talks about learning by going out and being in an environment talking to people doing things uh those sorts of things are, it's really how you it's really how you learn and for me virtual reality ticks off a lot, some of those boxes, not all of them, because there's limitations to what you can do as well. Um, but for me, it places you in that environment and in an immersion, uh, and you have this really experiential uh, engagement with the simulation. So, yeah, I think I think virtual reality is in in many ways it's a really good thing for uh, education, and when we're thinking about culture, I think it's a nice fit for culture as well, at least from how I think about culture, which is that everyday living or it's how your d different practices and experiences that you have. And especially, I think, um, you know, after the last 18 months of all being so uh, kind of stagnant in the places in which we're located in terms of uh, our homes, essentially, you know, the idea or the, the prospect of being able to experience this new world just through virtual reality is just really uh, quite amazing and, and I feel like the opportunities and, and the scope for what that can do for understanding you know new places and and and, and hearing new ideas um, is is endless really and and you mentioned before um, the narration and you know the the kind of narrative of, of the, the soundtrack and what you're listening to could you expand more on that? Yeah, sure. So that was my dad speaking. So like I said, he was highly integrated into the project as well. And so he'll be speaking to you and talking to you through the whole process and through the game as well. 
Um, there are other elements there as well. I have like an ocean going on in the background and there are other, there are other things that I can kind of, there are other sounds that I can put into it as well. Um, I, they're, they're obviously not, not as central. Um, and some of them are kind of things that you, different assets that you get um, from the internet or from different places. But I would definitely say the narration uh, and what my dad speaks to uh, is kind of central into kind of guiding you around uh, as you navigate the world. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very, very uh, kind of precious amount of knowledge that is is encapsulated in um, in the game and I'm very desperate to uh, experience it. And so kind of having gone through this process uh, and knowing what you do now, would you, how do you see developing this project um, further in the future? Yeah, so at, at the moment, um, the game, it stopped a while ago, um, I think several years ago, maybe two or three years ago, um, and I haven't really touched it since. I'd probably start a new game if I was to do it, um, but, and I would, I'd, I'd focus more on maybe the stories and maybe the story characters in the game uh, or maybe having shorter stories. Um, well, maybe maybe just a general focus on uh, more of the, sto the stories from the Torres Strait, uh, I think, if I was to do another game. So that's something that I probably want to do in the future, um, but it's really just finding the time to do it because um, there's lots of other things going on. <laughs> um, but it's something that I definitely want to do. Uh, I think it's just finding the time, the time for it. And how long, how long did this game take to develop in total? Yeah. So when would that have been? So that might have been. When did I start that? Was it 2015, 16? I know we're late to the party and asking you about this game, but I, for the theme of island life, we felt like we really wanted to dig deeper into understanding more. So, um. no worries. Ask all the questions. Yeah, I think it took maybe. So there were two iterations of the game actually. So I think we went from sixteen to seventeen, and then from seventeen to eighteen. So maybe two, two and a half years or something to develop the game in its current form. Um, so, but being honest, it is kind of a little bit aged in, in the way, I mean, 2017, yeah, that's kind of aged. So the, I started at the very beginning of when things were starting to kick off with VR. So it still uses a controller, like an Xbox controller to, to play the game. Um, good old Xbox. Yeah. As opposed to like the, um, the, the rods that people use or the hat or the, VR controllers. It's a classic tale of um, digital archiving and, and, you know, how we keep these digital artworks alive and, and, um, and you know, keep them in a form in which we can experience them ongoing to make sure that they're, they're not lost. But um, I mean, why were there two, why were there two iterations of the game rep? Oh, well, that, that was, the, that was the process that you go through when you're developing it. So like I, I talked to you a little bit about the player-centered design, uh, in the same way that we had the community-centered design, we had, um, we had built the game 
and we had got some people to play it, but then we wanted to put it through the, we wanted to put it into classrooms and see what they thought of it. Uh, we ended up putting it into about four different classes and they all had different angles on which they um, played the game. Uh, and they all came back with kind of different feedbacks about what they, what they wanted and what they liked, maybe what they thought was missing. Um, and then in the next iteration, we put in uh, different things. So one of the things that I inserted in the second iteration was more story characters about the, um, uh, from the Torres Straits. So I've put in Kupas, who's like uh, a crab, and he's like a, uh, I, I suppose, a benevolent figure in the or in, in one of the stories in the Torres Straits. I put in Wawa, and he's a giant. And then I had put in two different Dugai, and Dugais are like spirit, female spirits, um, but they're typically, um, uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of malevolent. So they're, they're, um, they're not always, uh, so they're always like interfering in uh, Islander life. So, but that was something that I did in the second iteration to add more flavor and culture into the game as well. So I went through the two iterations because they give you feedback and you can try different things uh, once you get the feedback. And the second was a success with all these stories and um, and voices to be heard. Um, I mean, it sounds like such an incredible resource. And do, I mean, we mentioned about education and, and learning and um, do you think ongoing that this is in terms of particularly learning about Torres Strait? and the culture and um and virtual reality do you uh, I, f- I feel like there's a, com- a campaign to be had uh about how we push for this type of learning within within schools and, and is that something you're involved in i know th- through your university work um you know it's, it, it, you mentioned before it's about place and understanding connection to country um is this something that you're also pushing through your um university students in, in terms of how they engage Oh yeah, absolutely. So I, um, in my, in my unit that I, I take, I have a VR component or a games-based learning component. Uh, and that's where I talk about my game. And, uh, in, I didn't have it this semester, but in the previous semester, uh, I had students when they came for the on-campus day, I got them to play the game and engage with, uh, thinking about how culture can be represented in different forms and maybe how, how they could use it in their own classroom. Um, and, you know, this just, I for me, I, this just isn't Torres Strait Islander culture. I think this is cultures more generally. So I, I'm even working on another project with um, uh, uh, an artist, so Yunyu Ong. Uh, and what we've done is we've worked with a, um, uh, a Wushu Grandmaster in um, kind of mapping martial arts moves and we've mapped them into a game called Beat Saber. And so in this way, we, we've got uh, Yunyu, who's a martial artist as well, but she's actually a musician by training, making music for this. It's a, it's a mod, making music for this mod. Uh, but then when you're in this game and you're hitting these objects that are coming at you, it's in the form of uh, a martial arts uh, kind of form. So there's definitely different, I see this as a really good way of embodying, like we hear, we hear about, we hear about culture and we read about it, but it's another thing to embody it and experience it. And I think VR 
it can't do it in it can't do it in the way that you do it in like um, a real setting or out in the open. But it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty good at doing part of it or communicating ex, ex, similar sorts of experiences. So I, I definitely see a place for it. Uh, I definitely see a place for teaching. I'm using VR to teach culture. Um, well, I'm really, really glad to hear that despite, um, you know, the game's uh, age, as, as you describe it, it's still being used. And I think it's such a powerful resource and tool. And um, I love that it has this, your dad's voice and, and kind of the elder narrative through it. Um, really in this this family effort uh, in, in sharing your your history and your culture and um, I like I said can't wait to uh, hopefully one day experience it and um, I'm really excited about the potential for this expansion of, of how we can learn and and finding these new ways to experience these things so thank you so much Rhett um, I won't take any more of your time, but I really, really appreciate you having this conversation with us today as part of this um, as part of this program. So thank you. Thanks for having me on, Jen. Appreciate it. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.